June 5th. When we went to sleep last night, Dahmish was still angry. He turned his back to me. I stroked him. He turned toward me and gave me a forceful hug. Even in his arms, I could feel his anger. Why do men believe that a woman's feelings have to be limited in direction towards just one man? If something pleases me about another man's body, that doesn't mean passion has overtaken me or that I must sleep with him. Even if I did dare to want it, that would only mean that my body and my feelings are alive, vibrant, and active. I'm a vital being. Dahmish must deepen his knowledge in this area. We have enjoyed being together. I wish that there were a pool nearby where we could have a swim. Honestly, Ibn Najam is only adding to the pleasure we are achieving. We have all the time in the world to explore all the hidden secrets of our desires, emotions, and feelings. Receiving radio broadcasts is pretty hard. Good news from our comrades in Aden, the Suez Canal reopened for international shipping. Not as good, formation of an Egyptian-American commission for development of investment in Egypt, made up of Rockefeller, the president of First National Bank in the U.S., the president of Mobile Oil, the president of Union Carbide, Fuad Sultan, Zaki Hashem, Abdul Jazarin, and others. We discussed Stalin and the personality cult. Yareb defended Stalin. He argued that he had been able to lead his country during a challenging time, confronting the invasion of Germany and putting in place a socialist infrastructure. I answered that his crimes could not be whitewashed, that he had wiped out hundreds of faithful political and military cadres and instilled fear in the hearts of the common people. He was also responsible for the declarations of the Ninth Soviet Congress that any statement that deviated from the party line would be considered treacherous. Dahmish challenged my critique, saying, What would happen if Fahad, for example, announced publicly that he opposed a decision by the Central Committee to engage militarily or retreat? I said that would be a special situation where military logic held sway, and that military logic was by its nature dictatorial and not humanistic. I thought the issue went deeper and that it had a truly philosophical dimension. Is it possible for an individual to monopolize the truth? Dialectical thinking says it is not. Science as well. But then how do you convince a fighter to confront death if the cause that he is fighting for can be questioned or has two sides? Is death for a particular cause ever even necessary? That was Ursula Lindsay reading from Sanala Ibrahim's Warda, which has been translated to English by Hossem Abu Ayla, uh, who is with us today on Bulak episode 73. Ursula is, as usual, in Amman. I, Marsha Linksquili, am in Rabat, and Hossem joins us from Houston, Texas, United States. <laughs> Hello, guys. Hello. Hello, hello, Hi. hello. I'm excited <laughs> to be on your podcast. I feel like a celebrity. Thank you for inviting <laughs> me. We're very pleased you could join us. So, Hussam, for those of you who don't know him, is a writer, translator, and literary critic. He's also a professor of English and Arab Studies at the University of Houston in Texas, 
and author of two books of criticism, most recently Domestications, American Empire, Literary Culture, and the Postcolonial Lens, in which he writes about Warda, among other things. He is the literary translator of Suleiman Fayyad's Voices, Ibrahim Abdelmagid's Distant Train, and Sanala Ibrahim's Stealth, and most recently Warda. He's also, importantly, editor of the Seagull Books Arabic List, where he's helped bring to English books we've discussed on this show by Hassan Zaqtan, Arwa Saleh, Sahra Khalifa, as well as others. He also co-edits the series Elsewhere Texts with Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak for the press. And uh, to start out, we just like to talk a bit about Sanala Ibrahim for those people who may not be familiar with his work. Thank you, Marsha. Um, <laughs> I'm suspicious about whether I did all those things, but, uh, but, but thank you. I think you anyway. so. I think so. We I read have them it all in on the internet. <laughs> okay. If the internet says it, then I'm not going to challenge it. Um, uh, again, thank you for having me. I listen to your podcast um, all the time, and, um, and I think it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's like added so much. Um, so Sonola Ibrahim is just a fascinating character. Um, he's been, he's in his 80s now. He's been writing since, he's been producing novels since the 60s. We know him uh, primarily as a novelist, um, even though he's, he's quite active in, in multiple um, genres and media. He's, he's written, um, he's translated, um, he's, um, uh, he's written um, travelogues and he's written, um, he went through a phase where he was writing sort of like science fiction for young adults. Um, those books are pretty hard to find, but I've seen copies of them before. Um, but we know him primarily for his novels. Um, he, he broke new ground with this uh, autobiographical novel that he wrote about being a disillusioned young man in Egypt uh, being let out of prison in the 60s during the Nasser era. And um, it's kind of a classic work of that sort of moment when um, the Egyptian intelligentsia or the Arab intelligentsia generally realized that this whole like pan-Arab um, uh, project that uh, many leftists and intellectuals were so excited about um, uh, was not going to be the glorious the glorious victorious uh, uh, stage of history um, that it seemed like it might be for a while. And so that uh, really short novella that was just had a kind of cynicism to it and, and uh, a lot of stylistic innovation. Tilqara'iha was the Arabic title. And there's two um, both interesting translations of it, one by Dennis Johnson Davies and a more recent one by uh, Robin Creswell. That came out in the 60s. Um, and then since then, he's just been, um, uh, you know, producing a novel every several years in the midst of being um, sent into exile a couple times and going abroad for other reasons and um, often stirring up controversy for his, um, uh, the way he kind of like holds on to his political principles and various situations that have to do with both literature and have to do with society and politics. Um, uh, always kind of interested in left-wing politics and always interested in, um, in um, critiques of imperialism and 
Americanization and global capitalism. So a real like um, uh, political activist as well as uh, writer. And then, you know, you kind of go over the course of his career and see him turning into this kind of senior figure. Now he's in his 80s and he's um, made a mark on Egyptian and Arab uh, culture at so many different stages. So he's in this interesting position now where we still kind of think of him as as a, a sort of rebellious, um, impish iconoclast. And yet he's kind of, you know, a senior figure as well. Um, so that's, I guess, like the, the kind of general outline. And I would throw in, I guess, a few kind of like things that you see in his novels, the way he, um, there's a kind of emphasis on autobi- autobiography. So there's a heavy, uh, in that, you know, first novel and that smell that I mentioned, you know, it's almost straight autobiography, kind of autofiction, um, as it's sometimes called now. Um, and that comes up again and again in his, uh, he works stylistically, the idea of the self into his novels. And then he, you know, works in other innovations later in his career. So he's also noted for pioneering a kind of nonfiction novel uh, or nonfiction element to the novel, let's say. Like, you know, uh, one of his classic works is Zat, which came out around 1990, is uh, is present in a very nice English translation, although it's gone out of print, where he works in all the newspaper clippings. Um, that and was the... the- the first book of his that somebody gave me to me when I was living in Egypt and that made a really big impression. And I, I really enjoyed a ton this, this sort of collage that he makes between chapters. So there's alternating chapters where he's telling the story of Zet and then he's creating a, a sort of historical collage around her through all these newspaper clippings, which apparently he, he reads and conserves kind of obsessively like he's an arc he's an amateur archivist right yes and you know the newspaper and the flow of information is obviously like a a philosophical concern for him and so the the physical artifact of the newspaper and the news um is there again and again in his in his work always in some kind of creative way and so we and we can talk a little bit if you want about the relationship between Warda and Zat because um, I think there is a relationship in his thinking. But I would say, like in terms of thematically, like what he's interested in or what he the innovations of his novels. I did just want to mention the autobiography and then this documentary element, and then the thing that people don't talk about. Um, I haven't seen much written about it, but he's very he was very interested in kind of like modernizing Arabic. And he has this idea that like Arabic needs to be written in short, simple sentences. And he was thinking for a while about like the fact that Arabic doesn't have capitalization. Like he's um, there's a special interest in language that, you know, makes it interesting to translate, uh, to be, you know, to work as his translator. Um, I could also throw in also that he's he's fairly famous in France, right, because he has this exceptional um, French translator, Richard Jacquemont, who's done probably 90% of his novels, um, have been translated into French by Richard. And, um, you know, whenever one comes out, then it's reviewed in all the big French papers. And so he has a little bit even higher of a profile in France than he does, um, in the United States and the UK. 
Mm. Well, generally speaking, until perhaps recently, I think I think translation into English is catching up. But yes. there's been a, a, a much, I think, richer uh, publishing scene of translation from Arabic into French with some excellent uh, publishing houses. And now I think translation into English, you're seeing this a similar depth and breadth, but it's pretty recent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Cur cur well, currently there's much yeah. more translation into English than French or any, any other language. Uh, but yes, it used to be. French uh, ha had a, had a much a wider uh, you know translation um, sort of uh, breadth than than English, but it, it's not the case anymore. Are we right. talking about now about Arabic literature in general? Or are we talking about Sanallah Ibrahim? But in 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 the case of Sanallah Ibrahim, of course, still. Uh, you know, a surprising number of his works have, it, to me, a surprising number of his works haven't been translated into English. Um, like Amri Kanli, I don't understand why nobody has taken that up, for instance, um, or, or Honor, for <laughs> instance. Uh, hmm. Sorry to laugh. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, American publishers, you know, in that in that particular novel, I've often had that thought, right? That it's not the most glowing portrait of the United States, and um, and it's very, it would be very Sanola Ibrahim, like kind of thinks in these terms, like you know, the work of literature is is not just the kind of like artistic artifact; it's also the institutions that produce it, right? So um, yeah, so Amri Kenley is yeah. A, a, a long, satirical, very critical novel about his experience teaching in the United States. And yeah, I don't know why. I mean, yeah, uh, it, it might be that folks in the United States didn't love it that much. <laughs> he's it, that's another way of introducing him, isn't it? Like he's written about Beirut. He's written this mm. novel, Warda, is like set mostly in Oman. Like he's. He's kind of that, uh, he he has Ice, that uh, Siegel books just published in Margaret Litvin's translation. It's a fairly recent novel um, set in Moscow, like that, that draws on his time that he spent in Moscow when he was kind of running away from the Sadat regime. Um, and, you know, a novel set in Berlin that's based on his experience there. And so he's there's a kind of peripatetic and global aspect to his writing that you don't find in all the Egyptian writers of that of his generation a lot of them are very you know in complicated and interesting ways very egypt focused um so so and and, and yet there's yeah. something his main preoccupations are very consistent. Like there's both a variety in approach and and, and yet I feel like yes. you pick up a Sanal Abrahim book and you recognize it stylistically and in terms of the kinds of theme he's interested in, I think he's very recognizable, right? Even though he does it in, in many in many different ways. And besides all the things that you pointed out, um, including this writing style that that is very conscious, this sort of like almost human camera sort of style, this seemingly affectless yeah. style. Um, there's also this preoccupation with with history and with a particular turn of history, right? I mean, he is a 
disappointed leftist. Um, and a lot of the stories are documenting sort of turns. I mean, if you talk about Zet or you talk about Warda, like how things turned out the way they did seems to be something he focuses on. I mean, so I guess I would like to say in response to your comment, that's that's the that's the best case that one could make for saying that there is a kind of like unity to the to the works and and it is conv- a convincing case, right? That there's a way in which a thematic through line. But I don't know if like I don't like Marsha, do you agree with that? Because I I feel like so I have a friend in France that I I got who's French and doesn't mm. you know know any Arabic and I got her turned on to Sanal Ibrahim and you know of course reading Richard's translations and you know one of the first things she said to me was like oh these novels they have nothing to do with you. like they're all completely different and I think she started with Stealth right which is Le, P- Le right, Petit Voyeur right. and, and yeah. she started with that and then she read Wedda after that. So, well, and those um, are actually my two favorites, and I think they're they're very different. I mean, stealth is so tender, and Warda I love because of Warda specifically as a character. Um, but I, I, yeah, I guess those two in particular are, are, are maybe to me the most um, stylistically distinct of his of his works. Well, he's trying different things, I guess, is like what I wanted to emphasize mm. is like he doesn't, you know, I mean, if you go from from that smell to, you know, um, th- through all the different really long novels that are 500 pages and then really short novels like, you know, that are uh, 150 pages of walking around the city, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's he's trying things that are different. So that that should be said as well. But yeah, the, I mean, the point if you, I was going to make about the right. settings, the global settings, is that sometimes he writes, you know, things about Beirut, and then people in Beirut don't particularly like like the novel, and it ends up being something where it has an afterlife. You know, at first it kind of like lands, and then later critics like pick it back up and say, "Wait, there's something more interesting going on here." And I think that that was true a little bit of Werda. Mm. Um, I don't think it was super popular in Oman when it first came out, but I'm not. I'm not positive about that, but 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 I think that he does have a little bit of history of that of clashing with, you know, places where he that he kind of like um, writes about somewhat critically in his novels, including his own country. Yeah, I well. mean, he got in trouble for the books he set there too. But we should say what the plot and setting of Warda is for those mm. who haven't had a chance to read it yet. Yeah. So. Um, so actually, can I go back to the Zat question as a way of answering this? So, so Zat, um, uh, which we've already mentioned, is this novel um, that is about a, a woman um, living in Cairo and you know, middle class Cairo in the eighties, and tells a little bit of her life history, and then it's intersected with these newspaper clips from the same era that it's set, found objects like actual newspaper clips. Um, and so the innovation is the use of the newspaper clips, which will take up whole chapters. And then you have this kind of like mock epic story of the of the middle class consumerist woman. So I'm I was trying to remember whether I'd read this somewhere or whether I'd heard him say it, but he set out to write this novel about um a strong Arab woman that would kind of like deconstruct the idea of the the stereotypical idea of the Arab female. 
you know, that exists outside the region, but even in the region. So, and the more he wrote, like, I remember him, I was trying, when I was trying to remember, like, am I right about this or did I just dream it? I remember him <laughs> saying this sentence of, um, that the more he wrote, oh, and Allah has been like, I, I was, the more I wrote, I realized she was just this hapless person, right? And he got <laughs> to the end of the novel and he was like, oh, I've done the opposite of what I, you know, what I set out to do. Although it's so great comedy the, and she's very sympathetic. Yeah. But yes, she's not a heroine. I mean, not a. Yeah, she's a mock. She's a kind of like mock epic hero. Like she, yeah. Um so anyway, Werdo was kind of his like his second like his his second try. He's like, well, let me try this again. And it happened when he fell upon um, documentary evidence uh, in some kind of archival archival research he was doing of these women that had participated in the in the revolution in the far, which is a which was a a, a breakaway region and attempted you know a region that attempted to break away from the Sultanate of Oman um, in the sixties when a global Marxist revolution was kind of spreading around through the region in the form of like um, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen forming as the British left uh, Yemen in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula in the 60s. And, you know, in other parts of the world, of course, in Cuba and in Vietnam and so forth, which are all get mentioned in in Werda. And so in the the, the the novel is this interesting kind of like hybrid of the different Sanal Ibrahims where you have chapters that are where the, uh, the, the title character is Warda, who's based on a woman that fought in the, um, in the Defar uprising and, um, kind of tells in the 60s, 70s era real time through her diaries, like her experience. And then that's interspersed with chapters of this autobiographical, you know, narrator Rujdi, who's going to to Oman after it's become a kind of like soft Islamist petrodollar state in the nineties, and he's going to visit his Egyptian relatives that are there to make money. You know, because they, you know, because the Egyptian economy is what the Egyptian economy is, as as portrayed in 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 Zat and. Um, uh, and so it, it intersperses these two, you know, these two trajectories in Oman of um, Rujdi, based on the author, going back to Oman, um, uh, uh, you know, try, getting interested in tracing the history of this figure, Werda, who he met briefly when she was a, a student in Cairo, she and her brother, Yarab, uh, trying to like track them down, see if they still exist, learn more about the revolution whether there are any traces of like leftist revolt still existing somewhere. Um, and so um, those two, those two kind of narratives kind of go um, uh, follow in parallel with each other. And then you see him, um, you see Rujdi kind of like observing the two, the two Omans juxtaposed against each other. Right. I, just, I don't know. I, you so guys have just read it. Would you? What would you add? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> Maybe I, you remember I, it better than I do. No, no. Uh, that that's an excellent introduction to it. I just was wondering because it's been so long since I've read Zet. In Warda, there's. I, I felt there were frequently times when he brought up different epics, different traditional um, epic story, epic stories from the Arabic epic tradition, and I wondered if he did that in Zet as well, or if this was sort of like 
I don't know, it's felt like a hint or a nudge or something, the number of times he brought up different epics. Um, so, hmm, so I would be interested in hearing an example, but, but is your question, is your question about that, whether that, yeah, whether the question is about that, whether that also exists in the, in the, cause in the, to me, as I remember it, the newspaper clippings from Zet were, they were international, but they were much more Egypt focused. They whereas were. the, whereas the character Warda, as she journals, she's interested in the entire world. And, and I know the same happened with Ursula, but I fell down so many Wikipedia holes, you know, I needed to know about, you know, the, the My Lai massacre and what, oh, wait, that, that guy got entirely off the hook and, you know, I, I had to look up and then he became a what? <laughs> um, I had to look dense. up all, so, so many different things. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's dense with a history that you, I mean, personally, especially actually the references to the region and to like the, what was happening in Yemen at the time uh, with, with, with North and South Yemen and the various governments there. And, and then the sort of backers that they had in the region, like, you know, sometimes you give these lists of names and I was pretty lost. I mean, you get the gist and you get the gist of why she's writing about all of this because it sort of all trickles down all of this yeah you know conflict and cold war politics affects whether she gets guns or not or you know a little bit of money or some backing (sighs) or how she thinks things are going what tide is is going sort of globally affects her mood and her sense of her chances in this you know small local rebellion Um, yeah yeah, I mean, so there's a, I mean, you guys are bringing up a lot, uh, so I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll try to not go on too long. So about that, um, I think it's it's maybe less, uh, Marsha, but um, but there is she she has a uh, again, it's been a I also for for me too, it's been a while since I've read it, but she has a friend named Himat or Himma or something like that, and so. Mm-hmm. I remember reading in the criticism, like put together, that if you take, like, you know, Zat isn't a name that really exists in uh, in in the Arab world, of course, right? And so when they made the Temsaliya, when they made the the TV drama about it, then they call then they called it like a girl named Zat, right, to show that Zat was like weirdly being used as a name. But there is a point where, like, the two of them, she and her friend, get together to try to like. Um, file a complaint about the expired, you know, fish, canned fish or something. And uh, one of the commentators like astutely observed, oh, this is Zat al-Himma, right? Who is the uh, famous like okay. right. Arab uh, uh, warrior queen, right? Right, um, right. So there is a little bit of that going on again in a completely different way. Um, in terms of what are the, yes, like I myself, I was using Wikipedia. I was using Richard Jacquemin's excellent French translation. I was like using some of the sources that he, I mean, it's a novel with a bibliography. And I had an interesting exchange with my publishers about like leaving in the, the bibliography. At first they were like, well, why would we put a bibliography? And I was like, well, that's, that's the point, right? Is that he wanted to sort of defamiliarize readers by having a novel with a bibliography. So I was able to use a little bit of that. But but I was a little bit scared at times to be looking up all these weapons, you know, on Google, like Google searching <laughs> all these weapons and things. Uh, and I think I did sort of like send that on social media, by the way. Oh, I'm Googling these weapons because I'm I'm a literary translator. I'm not a jihadi. 
Um, and it came out okay. Like that, yeah. I'm in Houston, Texas, doing this, right? So, um, so yeah. The 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 in terms of the history, the like I I liked what you said, Ursula, about like um, thinking about the ways that she. All this history kind of comes in through her diaries, right? So, so that's I think one of the things about it that's a little bit interesting, uh, a, a little bit innovative as a novel, right? Is that you have this character and you're reading her diaries, and her diaries are full of all this like global, like global Marxist revolt against against oppression, um, and so there is a kind of there is some discussion with Sonola. Uh, and his work and this kind of like uh, stage that he went through in his career where he was like just downloading tons and tons of documentary information into his novels. And I've heard he him, he himself questions, oh, you know, it would be shorter and it would be better if I didn't put all this in. Like he, he himself is not so certain like of, of why he did this, but I just find it really fascinating. And in this particular novel, then for me, um, as a reader and then as a translator who's kind of acting out a reading through the tr- through my translation, what was important about it was that, um, you know, it's really strange for us to think today, whether we're reading this in Egypt or in New York or in Houston or in Europe, like, how do you, the, the Wereda was very comfortable. Like, she came from the Omani elite and her father, as, it, as it's presented in the novel, was this like, you know, um, uh, affluent businessman, right? Who was doing, who was like working the kind of like Indian trade route and um, and kind of creating all these monopolies for himself in different uh, traded goods, right? So she was very comfortable and she was a student at the American University in Beirut. There's no reason why she, uh, the there's a kind of question being thrown out of like, what would make a person like this decide to give up their comforts and go fight uh, with these like rebels who she arrives and she has a very hard time like relating to, right? That's part of, isn't that part of like the narrative it presents is like she gets there and she's thinking, God, I don't know these people. They're completely different from me. I wasn't ready for this. Mm, mm. So to me, a lot of that, the way the documentary works in this particular novel is it's filling out this kind of like psychological portrait of somebody who would make this radical decision that we might find really admirable uh, today when we look at it, but but it's very difficult for us to relate to or understand. I also really loved how it would be, you know, one sentence would be about, you know, the situation going on in Yemen and the next would be and about how she saw someone, you know, one of the male fighters bare chest and how she felt about that. <laughs> that, the, you know, those... Yeah. The, Global politics and sort of her period coming, you know, rub rub right up against each other. Right. I mean, I'm thinking about this this character and whether you get to the bottom of her motivation for taking this incredible personal risk and sacrifice. And I'm not sure that you do, and I think that's okay. Uh, In a way, it remains... Because he doesn't present, uh, you know, there's not some, she never explains particularly in the diary, this, like in any length, like this is why I took this commitment or this happened to me or this person persuaded me or this is the childhood experience or she just becomes this 
it almost is from the beginning of the journals already almost this person. They start in university in Beirut. She's not quite there, but the transformation happens kind of, uh, and, and I think that's maybe well done actually to not try to like over explain it. And I think what he does successfully is create an, an extremely sympathetic character, create somebody who is brave and good and somehow not boring. I mean, yeah. who is, who is really a model kind of character. And yet, and you have a lot of affection uh, for, um, and I do think there's sort of like these strands in the book that are a little bit, you know, I mean, my theory, and I know Marshall, I don't see a hundred percent eye to eye on this is that like, he's stuffing the book full of kind of the, his political and historical concern and projects. And then he's paying you back for the work that you do <laughs> reading that with the, with the narrative pleasure of her voice and her story, which is kind of the narrative that keeps you going and which she develops into also this nice detective story of what happened to her, what happened to the journals, like, will he ever get to the bottom of this? Um, and it gets more and more compelling, the more you care about her. Uh, so it sort of reaches a lot of suspense at the end of the book, you know, what, what happened to her. And I think he's successful even as you can sometimes see the work of putting those parts together. Right. Well, so I guess my somewhat difference is that I, to me, part of the pleasure of getting to know her is getting to know this sort of her intellectual concerns, her, her intellectual landscape. And I think so much of that is learning about what's going on in, in the world all around her. Yeah, and, I, I guess. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, so I didn't find that part to be medicine. <laughs> I well, mean, it, it, I is, guess, it is a slow buildup. You know, it's not like a novel that sort of yeah. takes you by the hand and races with you. But by the end, I cared about her so deeply. I mean, if you think about how much happens, so the, the, like there's a way in which both, like what you're both saying, like both the, both of the sides of the argument that you're presenting resonate with me. I mean, if you think about like, if you compare it to that, like there's so many, so much more happens, if that makes sense. Like so, there's so much more of a plot in this novel, and um, I guess like about like do we get a, a kind of like real portrait, a, a real kind of like dissecting of how she makes this like radical decision? That's interesting. Like I, um, I find Ursula, what you're saying about that convincing, but I guess like. I want to say that the more I work with Sonola Ibrahim and the more I kind of like delve into his work, I do feel like he's trying to, he's always trying to like change what a novel is. So to get that kind of portrait, we would have to be reading a kind of like proper American, like, you know, I don't want to say Updike like, but like a proper psychological novel that would be reviewed in the New Yorker. Right? And he's not interested in that, at least not in this case, right? He's mm -hmm. interested in kind of like what kind of new uh, tools can I create for novelists that will um, present a kind of different sort of psychology that's mixing together these different issues. Or I say mixing together, right? Because the psychological novel presumes they're separate. Like, you know, her getting her period or her being attracted to like her uh, her fellow gorillas guerrilla fighters, bare chest, like that those things are separate from, um, 
Che Guevara being, you know, visiting Cairo and being interviewed in El Ahram, like, yeah. but, but for her, like, I think part of the project of the novel is to sort of like juxtapose those things and ask, like, do they have to be separate? Like, are our, our concerns with uh, social justice, um, uh, are they some, are they this kind of like, you know, specific thing that exists only in particular contexts? No, and I, and I think that because he puts a lot of himself into her, like I imagine, I imagine that's partly how he created this character, and 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 her leftist convictions are an interest, and her sort of education and her principles are are sincere, and there's something very touching about that sincerity, and they're practiced, um, and and there is something con- convincing about about them. How do you describe her in the introduction that she's both she's unima- there's something unimaginable about this character and yet so compelling is that right Yeah I mean I think <laughs> I was writing in the introduction uh that like an introduction that was sort of like mad at all the people who kind of like had taken a look at the at the at the report of the novel and said, Oh, you know, this doesn't look interesting. You know, <laughs> uh, So yeah, maybe there was some, some of my, some of the people who helped me with the introduction kind of read that and thought it was a little bit defensive, but I guess like, yeah, the, the, um, both I hearing news of a, ad- admitting in a way what a, I thought it was true about the character. She seems on, on paper, you know, too good to be true. And then she, she's, she works though. Yeah. I mean, she's uh, the, I, the phrase that I kind of like, don't, don't mind so much that I couldn't, is she's unusually complete as a feeling human being. Right. So mm-hmm. that, which what I'm trying to get at is like the way we separate out this whole thing of, Oh, you know, um, my friend Fulan is into politics, like, or, you know what I mean? Or, or, oh, no, I'm going to think like, I've been thinking about politics all day. I have to like eat my dinner and hang out with my, like, with my kids and my partner. Right. I mean, it's that sort of thing of like, you know, politics is this is almost like a sub discipline or something like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's sort of what the, the point, the, the thing that I was trying to provoke in the introduction, um, and one of the things that. that's really remarkable to me about the book is the extent to which he succeeds in making a portrait of a woman character that I find utterly relatable and believable. Uh, I just, if I were reading The Smell of It or That Smell, I I wouldn't believe that, he, <laughs> I wouldn't believe that author would write a a compelling female character. Yeah. Yeah. Um so as you mentioned, I've written about Werda a little bit in um, in my last academic book. And there's also an article I wrote about Yemen that was in a, a feshrift for my, my mentor, Barbara Harlow, after she passed. Um, she had come to give a talk in Houston um, about drones um, mm. just a few months before she died. And so I that got me thinking about Yemen and the drone war in Yemen. And of course, I was translating this novel. And so uh, those are the two contexts I've written about it in. In my book, I wrote about it as a partition, as Yemen as a partition state, right? Because there was a North Yemen that didn't go the Marxist route. And then there was the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen in the South. Um, the article that I would like to write, I think, that I I think I still have in me and, and 
maybe we'll write someday is about this specific question of feminism, like how the novel comment comments on feminism and represents women. Because I, I think like the more I worked on it, the more I realized, oh my gosh, like this is a kind of radical critique of the Arabic novel in the way that, you know, you have this like long history from the early Egyptian novels of these stories where, you know, you have a woman and she's usually a peasant woman or a working class woman and all mm. the different, all the different men are in love with her, right? The police officers in love with her and the businessman's in love with her and her like, you know, high school sweethearts in love with her and the, you know, the farmer out in the field is in love with her. And this is showing like the nationalism, like she's the nation, right? She's the way in which like the nation could kind of come together and, um, all these different sort of or like subcultures or uh, groups within the communities within the nation um, can be joined together by love, right? And so it's interesting to me to think of this novel and to think specifically of the title character as a kind of like attempt to explode that whole tradition, right? Because she's not she's not the nation; <laughs> she's the opposite, right? She's right. she's very committed to inter- to the international um, and. Um, and, you know, I mean, she's capable of like pursuing men as easily as they're capable of pursuing her. And when they pursue her, it doesn't always go that well for them, right? Mm. Um, she can be surprising um, uh, and not just sort of this object of desire. So, uh, yeah, so maybe hopefully I'll, I'll write that article someday and it will be convincing. Well, and also she doesn't... Like, unlike these female characters you're talking about, she escapes being transformed into, like, a really legible metaphor, like, completely. Like, she literally kind of disappears out of the story. Like, we won't say, we won't give away the end of her story, but she kind of... She does. She 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 sort of disappears. You you and 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 she does not. She is not partnered with someone. She is not put into a particular setting. She's not defined, kind of right. I mean, right. Uh, so so she escapes that kind of over determination. Yeah, and I won't say very much about this, but there's a way in which, like, the more you think about her ending, because there's several endings to the novel, right? But the more that you think about the part where she ends, and I'm still actually working this out, but it it's not, very little is explained. Like, you know, we'll put it that way. There's a lot of questions that you're left with. Like you feel like you get kind of an answer. And then the more you, you kind of meditate over it, the more you realize you don't. Yeah. You know what this book I thought about when reading this a little bit was, um, Arwa Salis, The Stillborn, which you guys published, which you published in the series that you edit for Siegel, and which I loved this book, this memoir of a a leftist student activist woman in Egypt, you know, who was active in the 60s and 70s, and then reflects on it so many years later. I felt like her and Warda, like, (laughs) should sit down and have a conversation because we get Warda's journal from the 60s, and then... And then I just kept thinking, and and Saleh is this is this incredibly painful, like touching, honest, sort of diagnostic of the the failure of the political project that she believed in, right? At in terms of accomplishing the goals she thought it could accomplish at that time, 
Um, and I really thought of these two figures a lot in sort of conversation with each other. Because um, what Sonal Ibrahim wants to remind people of, I think, partly is, 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 is how much someone believed in those things, um, is how attainable at one point they, they, they were. Um, and so you don't get so much the, the rumination. You get the, the point of view of the male narrator 20 years later who's living in the different reality. Um, but I really thought of those two books in conversation with each other. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that they're both like maybe this translation and um, our dear friend and friend of the podcast, Samah Salim, whose name we should drop at this point, who translated <laughs> The Stillborn. Uh, so beautifully, so beautifully. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, there's a way in which there's a kind of general interest. And I think it I mean, I'm thinking now of some historians that work on the Middle East and, um, you know, there are many that I could name, but I, you know, of course, in the introduction, there's Abdurrazet Takriti, who's now my colleague and also lives in Houston, um, which is odd that like um, Houston would become the, the center of, of, of this kind of work but in many ways. But anyway, um, Abdurrazet Takriti, like there's a kind of general interest amongst historians and I think amongst some literary figures as well in in the Egyptian left of that era. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, blindnesses and insights and it's, you know, what it achieved and what it didn't achieve. Um, and I think, you know, about Werda, uh, the novel Werda, I would say like the observation that you're making helps us see the kind of two narrative strands that are sort of presented in the novel as juxtaposing as, as kind of like floating up in the air apart from each other. I mean, the narrative strand of Rujdi visiting his relatives in Oman and, and Werda, it helps us kind of think about those as being part of the same story a little bit more, right? Because you see, you know, the result of all this, um, you know, the, the result of the kind of arc of the optimism of the, of the Arab left um, that doesn't come to fruition um, the result of that is, you know, the contemporary situation, um, which is petrodollars and Islamists and um, income inequality and the income inequality within states and across states. Uh, and even in his voice, it's like his voice is so disillusioned. It's so compared to hers, like the voices are different. But to, to me, to me, one of the, th if we talk about the ending without talking too much about the ending, um, one of the open questions is to what extent Warda continues to live? What extent does she persist? Mm. To what extent did she make a difference? Did she have an impact? Um, and, and I think that, uh, to me, that, that's left as a, you know, something for the reader to decide um, on, their, on their own. But I, I did feel this um, sort of, uh, I don't know, optimism that I felt to me was, it, it felt strange for a Sanala Ibrahim novel. Or maybe I'm yeah. imposing this optimism. Maybe I just <laughs> love her so much. Yeah. It's a little bit like, I guess it's a little bit like the battle of Algiers, right? If you guys have seen, I presume everybody yes, who yes. listens to Bulak <laughs> has, has seen battle of Algiers many times, right? Um, it's a little bit like that, right? I mean, the, 
the, it's the, the, it's a narrative of the resistance being crushed, but you do, you know, you flash forward to independence and you feel that celebration uh, at the very end. And, and it, it seems strangely optimistic without being like, without being corny or unbelievable. Um, and so I guess like, this is a little bit like that. I, I, I think part, maybe part of why I feel a little bit optimistic at the end is because there's a, there's a lot of these novels that I mentioned when I was introducing Sanola Ibrahim, there's a lot of them where you have a character like Rushdie that's clearly identifiable as like, you know, an autobiographical, like, you know, drawing heavily on autobiographical elements that just dominates the whole novel. And in this one, you know, you, you have this, this other character who steals the novel from him in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that in some ways puts his own, uh, cynicism or his feelings of defeat. Right. Um, it gives an alternative to that, right? It puts it in dialogue with something else that's not so uh, not so pessimistic. Is that does that work? Yeah, for you guys, absolutely. Or? That is absolutely how I feel about it. And uh, yeah, I feel that narrative. Maybe maybe she doesn't triumph, and we didn't get the socialist utopia, but narratively, she wins. <laughs> <laughs> that's an that's an interesting way of putting it. I was going to say that I don't find it particularly optimistic, but that. It does, you know, by the by the way it emphasizes the importance and value and and almost threat to some things that the record that she writes this textual record that it's the sort of that the the book is 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 built around that there's this emphasis on, you know, that's what you can at the very least preserve the truth of your experience and of the history that you lived and that that matters, that that really matters, that, that, that if you have that, um, then other stories maybe are always possible. Yeah. And then you just like realize by the time you get to the end of it, don't you have, Oh my gosh, like Sudan and Iraq and Vietnam and right. All these other places where these things actually happened. Right. And, and, um, yeah, there's just there's so much history that's kind of documented in the novel of, you know, people standing up for themselves um, that that I feel like is is inspiring at a certain level. Um, I mean, you know, it is a novel. I, I think we're getting a little bit maybe I'm getting a little bit over my speed. I don't think Sanola Ibrahim necessarily meant for us all to revolt, but I guess we're, you know. We're but maybe he did. Maybe so we should. Her. Come on. I don't think he'd mind. I, don't, I think <laughs> he'd be <laughs> pleased. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, if this, yes, if this novel were to inspire some future feminist leftist revolt, uh, yeah, I don't think he would complain. Was there, Hassan, was there a particular um, reason or a particular road that led you to translating this this book now i'm um i mean you've already translated this lovely memoir of sonali ibrahim's but was there is there a story behind how you ended up working on this book um yeah it i i i basically like i finished working on stealth i'd known sonali ibrahim since the 90s i i lived in i lived in egypt um for a big chunk of the nineties after I finished, uh, my graduate studies. And, um, 
And, you know, I spent most of those years just meeting all the writers. In the end, I even had this like audience with Nagib Mahfouz and I have some grainy pictures of me sitting like in a hotel room with Nagib Mahfouz and his handlers. I have the exact same experience yeah. down to the and picture. A, yeah. And a security, you know, the security guy with a thing, with a, with a piece in his ear, you know, is like there mm. listening to us talk about uh, Kura and, and Ereb and th- those sorts of things. Um so, yeah, I knew Sonola from that time through some friends and, um, and you know, we followed his work very closely and was like, oh, am I going to write about Sonola or, or, you know, what is my relationship to his work, which I'd always found inspiring. And then, you know, the opportunity to translate stealth came along and, you know, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, tr- I translate a novel every six or eight years because it, it always ends up being some kind of there being some kind of drama. So there was drama with that as well, but I, but you know, I managed to get it translated. And then I was, I felt that I wasn't done. Like it had been a good experience. And, and it, you know, it's one of those things where like, I love the novel so much more after I translated it and saw all the intricacies of it. And um, so I was at a conference with where Richard Jacquemont, the, his French translator uh, was present. And I asked him, you know, I'm still interested in Sonola and I'm still in touch with Sonola. What should I do? And, and I, I threw out a few possibilities, but he said, Oh no, the one that ha- that's task that should be in English that isn't is Wadada. It's very rich. And, um, and that's what got me started on it. And then, you know, I mean, I, I won't, you know, go into great detail about how the sausage was made, but it wasn't easy. Right. And mm. the more I kind of like f- felt resistance uh, to, to the project, the more determined I became, like, cause I just associated it with, oh, you know, this novel is going to revolutionize, right? Where does this going to come back to life and it's going to overthrow the existing neoliberal order, right? And so I can't let these people stop me, you know, with their, with their narrow minded <laughs> like, yes. valuation of the psychological novel, like is not going to stop me from doing this. So um, yeah, so that's in kind of general outline how I, how I got caught up in this. Um, but it took me many years to kind of get it done and many ups and downs along the way. Maybe sometime I'll put them all in my memoir. <laughs> well, stealth was enough. I mean, the a flame it was came out from a flame books, right? That then collapsed. And yes, then that it was finally one made of the, its way to new directions. Speaking of ups and downs, yeah. I wanted I wanted it to come out with new directions. And so I pro- approached Sonola and I and and I had already been in touch with Barbara Epler there. Um and I didn't I think unbeknownst to me, Robin Creswell um had had gone to them with his idea of retranslating uh ah. And so there was a sort of like, you know, um, you got chocolate in my peanut butter kind of moment between Robin and I, like I put him in touch with Sonola and then New Directions got interested in Sonola. But Aflame, when I, when we started talking about the translation of Atalossus, uh, Stealth, um, Sonola had already signed with Aflame. And then Aflame, which was a wonderful project and they did very interesting things. They were existing mostly on grant money. Their grant read out and the, the, the publisher folded the week after stealth came out <laughs> like yeah, literally like I remember. it was the very yes. last thing i even got this email saying we're going out of business to all our writers and publishers we're going out of business and it wasn't clear to me wait are you going out of business the week before stealth comes out <laughs> or the week after it comes out 
So as a result, it kind of it, it came out in, let's say, a limited exclusive edition, like well, that's the par- positive spin on it, um, with Aflame Books. And then later it was, um, we worked a li- very light hand, kind of like Americanizing some of the translation and then, mm. and then put out a, a slightly different version with, but basically the same translation with new directions. Yeah, now I now I'm so sad that I didn't get a print copy of that. I they I don't they sent me a PDF, but I I wish I had a collector's item of that small <laughs> run. It's yeah, a very it's a we... very nice book, the mem- the memoir. It's it's really I'm very very and very interesting and yeah. And different, um, right? Different from yes. his other work. Yes, yes, different different atmosphere, different um, and I meant to ask you, so since we're speaking about now more about translating and publishing and so about uh, um, editing the Arab list for Siegel books, a little bit about, uh, you know, the kind of books that that you look for there or, I mean, like Marcia said, we have actually talked about a number of them. There's a number of books yes. that you've put out that we've really loved. Um just you know what what the what the idea behind that is or what the experience has been like so far. Yes, so you mentioned that I work with Gayatri Spivak. Um, so we've for a while, uh, she and I have been trying uh, t- trying to find a venue um, to um, translate uh, critical theory, works of theory and philosophy and intellectual work that are not European, right? Because um, um, European works really dominate the translation scene in that particular sub-discipline. So it was through her, like she's obviously from Calcutta and, and Seagull Books is based in Calcutta. And we were frustrated with our first attempts to kind of do this project in the States. And she, you know, she's uh, brilliant and eccentric and all the things that, you know, I'm sure every, like, you know, everyone who works on literature or literary criticism has heard like a thousand, like, you know, anecdotes about her. Um, there's a whole kind of like Hadith literature around her. almost, <laughs> like, And, um, uh, and so she, like, she at a certain point said, we're going to, we're going to do this with Siegel. Right. And then she, and I was like, okay. And she was like, come to Calcutta and we'll have lunch with Naveen and you'll, you'll be sold. And I was like, well, <laughs> Yeah, I don't necessarily fly to Calcutta for lunch. It's not my, um, <laughs> it's not the world that I live in. But anyway, I, you know, I started researching Seagull for that reason. And I saw that they, you know, they had an amazing African list, but they were focused at that time primarily on European literature. And they have these like, you know, the set of like publishers values, you know, they care about the book as an artifact that they're, they're wonderfully done. Um, you know, the perspective is not a New York perspective, but it's not, neither is it, um, neither is it academic, right? I mean, they're very much like, um, they're people who care about literature and books and the arts. It's, I mean, the, the office, if you, when you actually go there, like it's this incredible, whatever cliches people have about Calcutta, both the Indian cliches about what Calcutta is and then the non-Indian cliches. It's this crazy mix of all those things and then more. And so I think that list I see as, so my initial idea was 
these people, when I saw their catalog, I was like, these people should really have an Arab list. And of course, I'd been working at that point for many years, you know, trying to kind of like sell um, kind of like, you know, pathbreaking or widening the lens kind of like views of Arabic literature um, in in the centers of public of Anglophone publishing here. Um, and so I just like, I just saw it as an opportunity for them and as an opportunity for, um, for people like me to have a different, um, just, you know, a, a, a different stream and a different voice, like I could kind of change the conversation a little bit. And of course, then you start doing it and you realize, oh, this is hard work and you have to have resources <laughs> and you have to, <laughs> and it's slow and meticulous, you know, but I think, mm. you know, they've been great. And the way, you know, the way it started. And so I like part of it was like, OK, let's get a new kind of writing if we can or things that won't be understood necessarily in New York and London and other places. Um, but also, um, you know, these translators like Samah Salim or, you know, um, so their, their vision is like, they create relationships with authors and they'll do multiple, sometimes, you know, they'll do multiple works by the same author. And my vision was like, oh, let's get the great translators who are not reinventing the wheel with their translations and let's just give them a, you know, a forum. Mm. And so some of these people are translators that I've never met, but I've gotten to know through this project. And some of them are people like Samah and and Fatty Judah, who hasn't translated to us, but he was the person who brought us to Ghassan Zaktan and Sam Wilder. Mm. And so some of them are very old friends of mine, like Fatty and Samah. And some of them are, you know, people I've met through this and, and or people I've never met, but I feel like I've become close to through this, like Soad Hussain and, uh, yeah. and Robin, uh, Robin Mojer, who's mm. done several things with us. And now it's, you know, it's, the, I think it's harder for the, for the folks at Seagull and easier for me. <laughs> I just kind of watch, you know, watch amazing things happen. There's, you know, we, we, we now, um, the world has, as of next month, it has uh, Salim Barakat in English. Finally. Um, yes, because there's this, you know, this volume coming out. Uh, Hoda Fekharadin is the you know person who initially approached me, but she, co-translated this volume with uh, Jason Ewan, uh, Come Take a Gentle Stab, Selected Poems of Salim Barakat. So that's exactly the kind of thing that I was hoping. Um, yeah, those kinds of in interventions. Like the, One of the them. things I would add is it's one of the few places where Arabic works that are not, you know, new, published in the last two years. Most publishers are looking for, you know, what's new, hot, just published in Arabic. Um, something, and some of these are older texts, you know, uh, Arwa is not living. Um, this uh, Sahra Khalifa's book is from, uh, you know, a much earlier book. Uh, and so that you're not working on the sort of general publishing rules. Well, we don't, we don't mind new and hot. We'll take, we'll take that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But it's true, like I, you know, what I knew, I knew that like this was a marriage made in heaven with these people at Seagull, Naveen Kashur, who runs the place, and uh, uh, Sunandini Banerjee, who's his right arm, and then more and more Bishen Samidar has kind of like been taking over. He's another editor in the house there. Um, I mean, Naveen was always at the beginning, he was like, don't, you know, don't sell us too much. Like, you know, they're not going to get in a bidding war for something. 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're much more systematic than that, and they have their kind of values, right? So if it's new, then that's great. Like, you know, we would love to publish, you know, the latest cutting edge new stuff, but we're not going to try to outbid, you know, a New York press that that's head was turned and nor, nor do we need, nor does Arabic literature need us to be doing that. You know what I mean? Mm, right, um, right. So, and it's true that we, we don't mind something that was published a while back, but we're not an academic press that's trying to like, you know, translate the archive either, right? Right. So right. Samah, um, yeah, I don't know if it's okay. Maybe you can, yeah, we, we can check with her. And if and if I'm if I shouldn't be telling this story, then you can. <laughs> but uh, you know, Samah initially, I said, hey, you know, I think I'm going to start this list, and I want to do something different. And she initially came to me with a novel by a very prominent like Arab novelist that everybody would have heard of, right? Um, who mm. is you know of an earlier generation. And she was like, oh, I taught this in my graduate seminar and all the students loved it and it really deserves to be translated in English. And I hadn't happened, I'd read other works by this author, but I went back and read it. And then I said to her, well, you know, it's great. It's a great novel, but I mean, any academic press would do this. Like, so is there anything, and we were just getting started then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is there like, can you, th- and as soon as I said that, she said, yeah, you know, you're right. And that's when she kind of came back later with the Ottawa Saleh. And um, I'm so happy that that was one of our first books, right? Because it did kind of announce us as we're not going to like reinvent the wheel. Like we, you know, we're going to do things that um, that would have a very hard time finding their way with any of the, you know, lists that exist out there. Right. Yeah. There is something unique about it. Also, by the way, every time I go on your website, I just like want most of the books that are there that I don't have yet. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, your covers are beautiful. And like, you know, I'm looking through the catalog and I'm like, oh, that one and that one and that <laughs> one and that one. So <laughs> um, you may get some demands from me soon is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm warning you. Um I think Naveen yeah. will be down with that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that will be okay. Cool. So not Ibrahim will be fine if we, if we revolutionize the world and, and she <laughs> will be, will be fine if we buy their books also, like both, uh, both can coexist. Well, we will put a link um, in the show notes to uh, the, the Seagull catalog that we've just talked about. And obviously um, to the page for Warda itself, um, which I really highly recommend that that people read. It's a beautiful translation. It's a one of its kind kind of story. Um, so uh, we'll we'll share with people where they can find it. And um, we really want to thank you again for for t- for taking the time to talk to us. I absolutely thank you guys so much. Yeah, I really appreciate this forum. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, thanks, Marcia. Bye. And we will be back in a couple weeks as usual. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.